0: as the prophets go so uh, does amos uh, there there is a good bit of repetition in the prophets certainly in the minor prophets as well as those major prophets repetition involving god's judgment involving god's restoration involving illustrations of the kingdom of god and of the purposes of god and the book of amos is no different in that regard amos is unique among the prophets amos possibly the first writing prophet. Uh, Amos certainly had an interesting background as well as a prophet. As he says in the book, I was not a prophet or a son of a prophet. Amos didn't go to the school of the prophets. Amos was (coughs) a common man. He was a herdsman. A few descriptions of Amos indicate not only that he was a shepherd, but that he was a herdsman. In other words, he appears to be one who dealt with herd animals, uh, most likely sheep and cattle. Also, he was a dresser of sycamore figs. And what that seems to mean is that Amos actually prepared individual figs by cutting them so that they would ripen more quickly. So Amos was as it were, a man of the earth, but nonetheless one mightily called of God, as indicated and confirmed by the Spirit with power, a word that we should listen to, of course. And one of the unique aspects of the book of Amos as we make our sweep through the Scriptures and look perhaps at some of the distinctions that the prophets have, and while Amos wasn't the only one, that did what uh, he did mostly in this book of Amos in his writings. But what we see is that Amos addressed his prophetic thunderings, as it were, not primarily to the people, but to the leaders. Uh, And so it might be uh, that um, we perhaps might wonder how it is uh, that the Lord's truths are applied to those that might not hear them. But nonetheless, they are ready to be heard, and there are proclamations to leaders, uh, and Amos is one that does that. Now, in the midst of this, I recognize, as does uh, anyone who would proclaim the truth from the book of Amos, that uh, the intent certainly isn't primarily for you to uh, amen heartily, that uh, there's judgment Uh, and harsh words against those who are not actually in this room right now. Yes, you take it to the leaders, those crooked sticks, and so forth and so on. But we also see that while that is appropriate, but we also recognize that, that God has a word for us as well in the midst. And so I would certainly want to draw your attention to that this morning. And so... I'd like to very briefly survey the nine chapters, but primarily focus on chapter 6 as we look at this passage again. As I mentioned, Amos was uh, a common man. He was a man of the earth. His ministry occurred during the reigns of Jeroboam II of Israel as well as Uzziah of Judah, both of whom had long Tenures. Under these kings, there was tremendous renaissance in the economy, in the military, and in the culture as well in both of these countries. They had great stability, great prosperity. Israel expanded her borders. And uh, so, of course, the kingdom was split at this point. Israel was to the north. Israel had ten tribes. Judah, so named because of one of her key tribes, Judah, that is, maintained the south. And they also maintained, of course, the temple of God. And so one of the things that's brought about here is the false worship that occurred in Samaria. And that's one of the references in chapter 6 here that you'll see. The reign of Jeroboam in Israel was one of immense prosperity with territorial expansion and wealth. But also this tremendous expansion carried with it a tremendous oppression against the poor. As the prophet Amos enters the scene, he thunders against Israel's persecution of the needy and drowned trodden. Amos is from the south. He's from the land of Judah. And he does speak to those in Judah as well as the surrounding nations. But primarily his focus is on the leaders of Israel. No doubt it must have attracted attention that Amos, this simple farmer, is brought about by God to proclaim the truth, not only to the commoners of his day, but primarily to to the leaders. Um, proven, of course, by the power with which he preached. You can really get an indication of his own background as you look at some of the illustrations that he uses. There's much here about farming, about grain. There's a good bit about sheep and cows. There's references even to lions and bears. He uh, refers to God as roaring like a lion in the very first part of his prophecy that we see. It is appropriate that we would also look at our own nation. Ruling class leaders enrich themselves through the intricate myriads of advantages public office can bring. Lifelong bureaucrats rule without being elected. Special interest groups have huge sway in politics, as do minority factions. Turning to the church, many leaders have been drawn into being woke, and thus significant portions of those who claim to be evangelicals have been ultimately led into a false gospel with false guilt, empty empathy, and unbiblical rules. Overreactions to this have also created other problems, as some reject the government and the institution of the church altogether, insisting that these institutions become what is right in their own eyes. And of great concern, really, is the inclination, which we're realizing more and more, that well-meaning people view moral uprightness as a sham, as political rhetoric. They mock uprightness, literally viewing God's grace as a promise not to punish wrongdoing and to erase its consequences. Hear me. The grace of God will not and was never intended To remove from you personally or us as a nation the consequences of wrongdoing. Nor is it a promise that holiness is unimportant to us as individuals. This is a, this is an urgent matter. We are inclined to take undue advantage and to completely misappropriate the grace of God. The Apostle Paul strikes a chord that we must admit flows easily in our veins. Do we cons- continue in sin that grace may abound? And we look at God as a doting father who cares nothing about what we do. And that is the great theme of the book of Amos. Consider the impression that our children may have of public office, that it exists primarily for personal enrichment, for personal aggrandizement. It has little to do with the simple historical idea of public service. I mean, in the history of English-speaking people, those people that were public servants were referred to as ministers, of all things. Ministers. And that is uh, certainly, at least, has some attachment to this idea that it is God's government... And that involvement in service in that government is, in fact, in the category of ministry. And in the history of our own nation, there was a bona fide moral uplift for the culture. Our children, and perhaps even us, we may be inclined through the persuasion of sophisticated ideas in our own political climate to think that there is no place for the insistence of morality in our own government and that would be to reject this idea that is being put forth by among other people the prophet amos here this this is not an apologetic for theocracy While that is an idea that certainly needs to be looked at and dealt with, but nonetheless it is very, very important for us to understand that God's rules apply to every individual on this planet, whether or not they're redeemed or ever will be redeemed. They are held fully accountable, as are God's people. And so this idea is set forward. Again, the impression that we have or that our children have. This is a real challenge for us as God's people to pray earnestly and sincerely for, frankly, the crooked sticks that God has set before us as leaders. And we should recognize that in many ways our own political leaders are downstream of our own culture. But we also recognize that what the leaders do, well, they lead, perhaps unintentionally, And they lead to places where, unfortunately, oftentimes, we shouldn't be going. Moral uprightness is never negotiable. And whether or not holiness seems profitable in the short run, what the Bible reveals is that in the midst of cultural chaos and evil, orchestrated by Satan and his minions, the master of the universe still holds us accountable. And levies upon his people the requirement of holiness for our own good and his own glory. And further holiness among God's people is paramount for the success of any nation. Though our leaders studiously turn away, which clan can incline the nation to turn away, our God insists that He sees, He cares, and He will bring justice. And He will also bring restoration. Now another note that the Lord Jesus made regarding this light that God gives to His people, Jesus says, recorded in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, "...to whom much is given, of Him much will be required." To whom much is given, much will be required. Now, what does that mean? Well, you you have the oracles of God. You likely have a copy of it sitting on your lap right now. You have the privilege of receiving catechetical training. You have the privilege of uh, the adherence to a faithful confession forged over periods of time brought about by those fully committed to the veracity of the Scriptures. Some of you have grown up in homes that are committed to faithfulness. And so the point is, is that all of this is levied upon you and heaped upon you, and it's important for us to recognize that what you do with that is a matter that is of great concern to our God. We could look no further than the parable of the talents or other places where the Lord Jesus Christ displayed with crystal clear clarity this idea and this concept in the kingdom of investment and dividend. Investment and dividend, to whom much is given, much is required. <clears throat> you say, "Well, I'm imperfect." Yes. The Bible fully acknowledges and is written to a people who are imperfect. And you say, "Well, I meant to do this. That's good. God does have great interest in what it is that we meant to do. That's important. But the reality is is oftentimes we only mean to be mediocre servants of Christ. We only mean to do something in a way that may at least appear faithful. But is our full intent and do we marshal all of the resources that we have in order that our faithfulness would be upright? <clears throat> You'll forgive me for chiding you a moment. <laughs> if your desire is to get here at 10.30, you should plan to get here earlier. Okay? You should plan to get here earlier. Right, Because what it is that you're aiming for might not be what you need to aim for. The Bible says disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. And the leaders Amos prophesied to completely deny that incontrovertible truth. This idea that disaster pursues sinners, the idea that what we do is collecting dividends. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is always death. It's always death. It's always in that category. And if we reject the consequences of unholiness, and we are merely tempting, tempting God. The Bible says disaster pursues... Thank you very much. Disaster pursues sinners... But the righteous are rewarded with good. The Bible also says that no one is established by wickedness. The leaders Amos prophesied to flat out denied this incontrovertible truth. No one is established by wickedness. Now what does that mean? Well, again, what that means is if I'm not fully committed to the truth, I will not be able to establish anything. I can't build a family on that. I can't build a business on that. I can't build a nation on that. I cannot build a personal character on that which is wicked. No one, nothing is established, is firmed up, is created, is built, is structurally sound. Nothing in the category of wickedness will be established. The leaders Amos prophesied to flat out denied this incontrovertible truth. The Bible says fools mock the guilt offering in Proverbs 14.9. And this is exactly what those to whom Amos prophesied were doing. While it isn't unique to the prophetic office, again, Amos thunders primarily against the nation's leaders those of Israel and Judah as well as the surrounding nations, and notice what he is concerned with. Well, when you look at the prophecies, of course, you can look at uh, those to the surrounding nations. He addresses a number of the surrounding nations here. You can look at this. It's in the form, really, of uh, of a lawsuit. This is lawsuit uh, language here, but also you will notice, likely, Uh, If your Bible is laid out as most Bibles are, you'll notice that it is written in poetry. And so what you see here is a common idea. We begin, for instance, in verse 3, For three transgressions of Damascus, or for four, I will not revoke the punishment. We could look no further than this then this uh, lawsuit brought against Damascus because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. And you say, well, is the Lord primarily concerned with only the first table of the law? Only that they didn't worship God? No, as a matter of fact, he, is, he has judgment upon Damascus because when Damascus conquered another nation, they literally used farming implements to cut up the ground and rolled them over the foes of that day. So, the reality is that one of the things that stands out in the book of Amos is that God is informing us and informing His people that He is very, very interested and takes note of how you deal with others, with horizontal sins. Not merely, as it were, vertical sins in the first table of the law, and I'd like just to briefly look at the Ten Commandments as we think about what it is that Amos is discussing here. That which is referred to as the first table of the law is the first four commandments. And those uh, are typically viewed as commandments that have to do with a vertical relationship. That is, our relationship primarily with God. The very first commandment has to do with worshiping God alone as God. The second commandment is that we're not to worship God with images, but only in the way prescribed by God. This is the idea of right worship. This is one of the foundational truths, for instance, for the regulative principle. It has everything to do with what we do here in our worship service. Uh, We worship God the way that He has prescribed. The third commandment, that we should not take the name of the Lord in vain, that we shouldn't use His name in a way that would be blasphemous. That we shouldn't take upon our lips ways that would bring dishonor to the name of God, to God. And the reality is, is that we are known as Christians, right? And so we, when, we, when we cast negative light on that which we're referred to, we are breaking the third commandment. The fourth commandment is that we should work six days and keep the Sabbath day holy. So that's the first table of the law. The second table of the law contains commandments 5 through 10. The fifth commandment is honor father and mother. And that commandment also is extended into this idea of honoring those in authority. Honoring those in authority. Now the reality is, Children, it may be that sometimes you only, you, you only find that uh, you only have to be respectful to your mom and dad. But that would be to break the fifth commandment. Because the fifth commandment has to do with honoring those in authority over you. Now obviously that doesn't mean that you grant the exact same honor and responsibility to others, but nonetheless there is a recognition that there is honor and respect due to all in authority this is the fifth commandment the sixth commandment thou shalt not murder you should not murder it also has to do the positive aspect of that is preserving life preserving life you may say well i didn't kill anybody today i say well that's really great keep that up as you're driving Do you drive when you're half asleep? That would be to break the Sixth Commandment. Right? Do you you drive when you've had something to drink? That would be to break the Sixth Commandment. Are you careless with the way that you live? Do you take unnecessary risks? That would be to break the Sixth Commandment. (coughs) The Bible says... The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. You say, well, I haven't cheated on my wife. That's good. That's good. Keep that up. Keep that up. The Apostle Paul said something similar. He had to tell the Corinthians to stop hanging out with prostitutes. But there's a positive aspect to the command. How are you protecting purity and chastity? What is it that you allow in your home? What sort of images are popping up on your home screen? To not preserve purity in speech and behavior and heart is to commit and to break the seventh commandment. The eighth commandment, do not steal. Say, well, I haven't stole anything lately. That's good. That's good. Keep that up. All procurement of wealth is to be upright. All procurement of wealth is to be upright. Remember that load of scrap you took to the yard? Was that all really metal in there? Did you have like a tank full of water? That would be breaking the Eighth Commandment. You say, business is business. No, it isn't. (laughs) If what you mean by that is you can cast a shade on God's commandments, then that would be to reject and to break God's commandments. We're God's people. We belong one to another. The ninth commandment, do not lie. Promote the truth. The tenth commandment, do not covet. Are you content with your condition? So Amos is dealing with these sort of ideas. Amos is is directly dealing with uh, these ideas, particularly amongst the leaders of sins, one against another. If nothing else puts all of humanity on notice, the prophet Amos storms as a lion. Chapter 1, verse 2, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Mount Carmel withers. He addresses the leaders throughout this passage. I'll read to you a few passages here. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters. The righteousness of an ever-flowing stream. As Amos is directing his attention to the leaders, there was this idea, again, this was a great prosperous time. There was worship that was going on in the temple and in the false temple in the land of the north in Samaria. There was, there was the slaughtering of animals, there were feasts going on, there were sacrifices, but this is what God says to them, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. The point that he's making is that their outward heartless worship doesn't make them the people of God. Nor does it make them a people who can count upon His grace. This is a scary verse. This is a scary verse for God to say, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Now, you might be thinking, wow, what a relief. I I never did like those anyway. Well, that's not the point that Amos is making here. There certainly is a possibility for a faithful expression of what we might call a solemn assembly, where people would come together, they would humble themselves, they would pray earnestly and sincerely to God. We would see the work of God. We would see God doing His business amongst His people. But what Amos is talking about here, again, primarily directed to the leaders, is that they were doing this outward, heartless worship for show, claiming, again, and desiring to be seen by God, that they might be referred to as the people of God. And he says, no, a relationship with God is not a sham. And you have no relationship with God, and therefore you have no reason to expect the grace of God. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Your sham worship is a sham. In chapter 9, verse 1. Amos has a vision here. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. The capital's idea here really is an architectural term. The idea is that they will crush. The, this is the threshold, if you will, of the place where they worship. It will be crushed and it will fall and crumble and kill the people under it. This is alluded to in chapter 6, the place where we will look. And now I draw your attention here to Amos chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. The notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Again, directing his prophecy to the leaders, all of them are sunk in this kind of godless security. They, he, he brings note, uh, as we see here, of those that he's in Zion. That, of course, is the southern kingdom. And those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. There was a time when godly justice and morality were upheld, when leadership uh, was viewed as a high calling and a privilege. Moses and Aaron, for instance, certainly would fall into that category. Imperfect men, no doubt, but nonetheless exemplary and humble, faithful leadership. We could look at other passages here. I won't read some of these other portions But we can look at chapters 1 and 2 and see God's proclaimed judgment on Damascus, on Gaza, on Edom, on the Ammonites, on Moab, on Judah, and Israel. Let me just bring your attention to chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, or for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. So this idea, again, that there's great oppression, we can recognize this in our own nation. It's hard to watch, of course, as we see uh, a number of our leaders uh, really enriching themselves in their position while much of our nation languishes in very poor policy. And this is really what, uh, what Amos is bringing attention to. And one of, the, one of the important aspects of this simply is this idea that God does see that God does take notice, that God does respond, that God is involved in this, and that we are not alone, uh, that our security shouldn't be uh, in the grandiose uh, plans or fortifications, uh, but our security should be in God and in God alone. Verse 2, he addresses, he says, Pass over to Calamon, see from there, go to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. These, uh, these were... Uh, Places where the nations had built up and conquered. And he says, are you better? Are you better? Appears to be an affirmation that their so-called commitment to God has not been realized in the way they appropriate their borders or run their cities. Verse 3, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seed of violence... Put far away the day of disaster. Now, what does he mean by that? We see this every day in our own government. It's okay if we do this, disaster won't come in my lifetime. But we do the same thing. Sometimes we think in those same ways. Our leaders do impact us. They, they may unfortunately incline our own thinking in ways that would direct us away from God and not to Him. Trusting, even insisting that the day of the Lord, the final judgment of God is far off. We do this. We, we bargain with ourselves. I'll get serious about this tomorrow. I'll confess tomorrow. I'll repent tomorrow. I'll change tomorrow. I'll begin to read my Bible tomorrow. I'll invest myself in the fellowship of the church that God has placed me in tomorrow. We put off the day. The Bible makes it very clear that we don't know what a day may bring. We can be a people who joyfully receive from God what the day brings and earnestly, albeit imperfectly, motor through each moment with Him. Verses 4 through 6, While most of the people languish in stark difficulty and the leaders mock God, they openly lavish upon themselves luxury and fritter away their time. Verse 4, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory. Stretch themselves out on their couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. The animals they eat are pampered. They're not drawn right out of the pasture. They're pulled out of the stall where they're cared for in a different way. They drank wine, but not from regular wine glasses. No, they, they enter into absurdity in their excess and drink it out of bowls. And that's what Amos is getting at here. That's what the Lord is showing us. Again, we should rightly be disgusted, not with every expression of a desire to enter into an appropriate measure of leisure, but the idea is that it's absolutely sinful To mock the justice of God in this. They sing idle songs. There's a reference here to David, verse 5, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. It's important that you understand that there is, I am persuaded only one way in which they're like David in this, and that is that they create instruments. Their sinful state hasn't robbed them from creativity. But what are they doing with this creativity? They're frittering away their time. They're not worshiping God with song or psalm. They're not proclaiming the goodness of God as David did. They pamper themselves with the finest of oils but are not grieved or moved about the ruination of the people. They're called upon by God to lead. These leaders, verse 7, these leaders will be the first to go into exile. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, verse 7, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by Himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. God abhors pride. He, he abhors strongholds, trusting in things other than God. This, isn't, this is not a reproof for physical security or a strong military. It is a reproof for laying out all of their trust in these things and not God. There must be both, but they must lay all trust on God. Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. What does that passage mean? Does it mean you should be haphazard in preparing for battle? Because you're going to trust in the Lord anyway? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that you should be fully invested in every preparation for war. And that you should have a strong ability to defend and to do that which is right. But that isn't where our trust is. It's in God. Our trust is in God. And so that would be an important idea, and that is sometimes hard for us as people to understand that we should rightly invest and be firm in our commitments to do that which is right and to use the resources that we have, but also in the midst of that that we 're trusting God we 're trusting in God, our security is in God our ability to trust our ability to go on, our ability to operate and not be stress paralyzed by the by the difficulties of the day is that our trust is in God. Yes, make arrangements for yourselves financially. Be wise in that regard. Repair your house, plant a tree. But trust in God. Right? That's that's the idea. That's the idea. That's not pride. That's not trusting in other things besides God. In verses 9 through 12, we see something that really is realized in this passage. In 9 verse 1, we see that as God crumbles the place where they falsely worship Him, it then will crush the people and the leaders. 6.13, you who rejoice in low debar. You rejoice in low debar. You likely have a little note down there. It says nothing. Low is a negative for Hebrew, it means not. Not a thing. You rejoice in not a thing. He's referring to the leaders. you have any experience with that? Sure we do. We have legislators that can spend months doing nothing. That's exactly what he's referring to here. They rejoice in nothing. And then, he says here as he goes on, who have... Have we not, by our own strength, captured Karnaim for ourselves? Carnaim, uh, this idea of horn or strength, you also likely have a note for that in your Bible, represents the delusional hope in military strength. We got this! God says, no, you don't got this. I always had this. We rejoice in God. We look to God. Our security is in God. Woe be to us when we rejoice in that which is nothing. We pat ourselves on the back for that which is nothing. Verse 6 fourteen, Behold I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from hamath to the brook of the Arabah. And all he means by that is from the north to the south. There'll be there'll be a comprehensive work done by God. That's what he's saying here. sure you feel a lot better about that now. Now this is a hard prophecy for us. It's a revelation of the truth of our own experience, of our own human experience, right? It's not as if the creation of corrupt leaders just started last week as we know it didn't. And we should admit that we're perhaps inclined, myself included, to be rather sarcastic about those that God has put before us. But there's no place for that. There is a place for us to be earnest in our prayer for those that God has set before us. A way that we can earnestly affirm that God, we, as much as we hate to admit it, we have some association with those that are above us, and we also are inclined to perhaps see that it might be that we would do the same thing that they do. Perhaps we don't, we're not able to distinguish between that which is holy and that which isn't. It might be that we might wish that we were in power so that we could rule in a way that was not the same tyrannically, but nonetheless might be categorized in that way. Please turn your Bibles to Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches. Booth, the idea here is like a little tent. It's not a big thing, it's a little thing. Raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnants of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit, and I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now you might read that and you might say, yeah, yeah, I've I've read that before. I've heard about this thing coming, but where is it? Where is the restoration? Where is, where is my hope? Where, where can I see a shimmer of light? Where, where will I begin to see it when the harvesters overtake the reapers, the plowmen? And we see this bounteous thing set before us. When will that be? Well, of all people, we're a hopeful people. But we have some insight into this idea of hope. We have insight that most don't. And that is that hope, hope is about a thing that's real. It's about a thing that's coming. It's about a certainty that we receive by faith. We have a God who... concerns himself with the ways that we deal with one another. We, we've been making much, because the Scriptures make much, of our horizontal relationships, one with another. We've talked a lot about fellowship. We began our church looking and exegeting this very idea of friendship. Friendship. God is calling us to that. He's calling us to to walk faithfully with Him, recognizing all the while, just as the psalmist says, though the mountains quake and fall into the sea, yet we look to the Lord our God. We, of all people, have hope. We are motoring about." planting trees, building houses, teaching our children to follow us faithfully in this thing of faithfulness with great confidence that they and us will be in this place. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. The new heavens and the new earth. We're going to a place. Won't you come and go with us? Let's pray.